School districts across the United States are working to understand how to best meet the educational needs of their students, as well as the instructional needs of their teachers. Increasingly, districts are turning to data to help them do that. The data of education and educational policy is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American American Statistical Association. Joining me in the studio are regular panelists, John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, former and founding Chair of Media, Journalism, and Film. We have two guests joining us today, both from education research nonprofit, Education Analytics. Nicole Webster is a research analyst with the organization, and Libby Peer is the research manager. Libby and Nicole, thank you so much for being here today. We're happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Uh, just to get things started off, could you explain a little bit about what your organization is and what it does? Sure. Education Analytics is an education nonprofit. Like you said, we conduct rigorous research and evaluate schools and teachers for uh, different competencies and set goals for students to achieve in the, the spring. I was I was interested to, to read some of your work that's that said that um, there's been requests or or expectations that there's indicators of school quality or student success other than student cognitive ability, and that was something I wasn't aware of. Can you can you talk about a little bit about kind of the traditional sense of what's evaluated in terms of cognitive ability and some of these other other measures that you're looking at? Yeah, definitely. Um... Education analytics grew out of a value-added research center at the University of Wisconsin-Madison that was primarily focused on looking at cognitive outcomes like math and reading test scores. But we're growing and expanding into the field of social and emotional learning. And uh, social and emotional learning is the development of non-cognitive skills that are also important for classroom and career success. Also add on, this is mirroring a trend that you see um, all across the country at the district and the state level. Uh, since the passage of the Every Student Succeeds Act, which is essentially the legislation that replaced uh, No Child Left Behind, um, there's what's called a, kind of colloquially a fifth indicator of student success, which is the idea that when schools or districts are evaluating school quality, uh, they need to have a measure that doesn't just rely on academic test scores. A lot of states have chosen to use things like uh, their chronic absenteeism or student attendance rates to try and capture some of these you know, non-academic measures. And some of the work that we're doing at Educa Education Analytics um, in conjunction with a group of districts in California is to really see if we can expand uh, the different measures that might be able to fit for assessing uh, how students are doing in these non-cognitive realms above and beyond looking at things like attendance or suspension rates. Very good. So I started out my uh, teaching career as a high school English teacher in the Milwaukee public school system, Nicole. So mm -hmm. I, taught ninth, <laughs> I taught ninth grade um, American literature for five years in classes of 35. I had five classes of 35, and their reading scores l ranged from third grade level to 12th grade level in one class. Oh my. So, and we never did anything about uh, this sort of social emotional learning. And this was a um, basically 80% uh, African American school, very poor. So my question, if I was doing this today, how would your research help me in these classes? 
Definitely, that's a great question. Um, we've shown that students' social-emotional skills contribute to their academic success. So when a student believes that they can master the hardest concepts in their classes, um, they're better able to, to achieve uh, academic and career success. We also look at item neutrality and um, one thing that's different between assessing math and ELA and the social emotional survey is that the survey is administered to a wide span of grade levels, fourth through 12th grade, and it's mm -hmm. difficult to to ask the same question of all those age levels when you have such a wide span of ability. Right. Um, so it's, it's really interesting and fascinating to compare how a, a survey would perform differently than an academic test. So one f kind of follow-up is, uh, I know from my high school teaching experience how resistant f teachers are to this kind of data, especially because they don't understand it. And, and what's the challenges in sort of explaining this to, to people that are in the trenches, to everyday teachers, uh, and how, how, can, how can they actually use this data to, to help in, in this, these kinds of situations. But first, how, how do you explain this? <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. I think, um, you know, generally, as Nicole was mentioning, all of the work and the research that we do really is about uh, use and making sure that the analytics we provide can inform decision-making at, at all levels of sort of the educational ecosystem. And it's always a challenge to make sure that we're really closely aligned to what teachers need and what principals need and what superintendents need. Um, and, and social emotional learning data is no different, um, mm -hmm. as, as you mentioned. We, um, I'll say maybe a little bit about the context of, of where we're working. So we work with uh, the core districts in California, which mm -hmm. is a consortium of eight of the largest urban school districts in the state, including Los Angeles, Oakland, San Francisco, and, and many others. Um, the core districts also have what's called a data collaborative that uh, encompasses nearly 100 districts across the state, serving about 2 million students, which is about a third of all students in California. Wow. So this is a really massive scale mm -hmm. that we're talking about. Yeah. And one of the really exciting pieces of that large scale nature of the work is that we're able to do really interesting statistical research. We have tons of statistical power to answer all kinds of interesting research questions mm -hmm. that are really outside uh, the scope of, you know, your, your typical researcher in a university setting, for instance, who might be uh, responsible for recruiting their own participants to take a survey measure. Um, one of the challenges to that large scale nature, though, is that we're not boots on the ground in mm. classrooms with teachers working with them to help translate the data or working to help, um, you know, align their pedagogical practices to what they're seeing in the data. But the core districts do have a really uh, fantastic infrastructure set up where they are able to empower their local teams to really use these measures in the way that aligns best to their district's needs. And so the goal is to make a measure that's general enough and flexible enough that if a district really wants to align to improving their ninth graders growth mindset, for instance, or they really mm -hmm. want to focus on improving school culture and climate for their fifth and sixth grade. Uh, these measures would allow them to do that, and, and we don't necessarily take a strong stance on um, exactly what they should do once they have the data in their hands. Okay, thank you. 
You know, one of the things that I'd, I'd like to just take a step back and, ex and explore some of the, the components of, of what so, you know, socio-emotional learning is. I mean, you, you've listed four things there on, as constructs associated with it, the growth mindset, self-efficacy, self-management, and social awareness. Could you describe what each of those things are? Sure. Uh, growth mindset is the belief that one's abilities can grow with effort. This was popularized by Carol Dweck and her book, Mindset. Um, Self-efficacy is the belief that one can master the hardest topics in their classes and meet the learning objectives set out by their teacher. Um, Self-management is how well one participates in, in the classroom and how polite they are, how prepared they are to um, achieve academically. And finally, social awareness is a measure of students' empathy and how often they give compliments and also asks about uh, their listening ability and how much they respect their peers. So how do you measure these things? Good question. Um, we have a survey of about 25 items. What's really difficult is that um, there are only four items that we can ask to measure growth mindset and self-efficacy. So we want to be careful that the items uh, aren't all asking the same thing. Those items would, would increase the reliability of the construct, but um, only really be asking about one facet. And we want to make sure that our, our constructs are distinct and um, measured to the, their completest uh, ability. So which of these do you think is the hardest to measure, and why do you think that? Uh, so we're working with a self-report survey, and I think um, the self-efficacy and growth mindset items are really suited for self-report uh, because they're so internal. But self-management and social awareness are more difficult. They rely on a lot of self-awareness to answer accurately. There's also a social desirability bias. Um, so it might be better for a self-management or social awareness survey to be given to teachers um, and then they would report on, on the, the abilities of their students. Because a student saying that they, they gave a compliment or they played with students on the playground, um, that, that could not show as clearly how well they, they adapt to social cues. Do you do you calibrate some of those two measures, the self-management and social awareness? Have you ever calibrated the scale you're using with teacher ratings of, of such attributes? Uh, we ourselves haven't done that. Um, we work with a network of researchers across the country um, as part of the kind of core district research initiative. Um, so there has been some work to um, align teacher reports with these student self-reports since the core districts early on when they piloted these survey measures also had staff surveys and parent surveys. And they found generally um, pretty strong correlations, but as you can imagine, there's, there's certainly differences. And uh, Nicole really hit the nail on the head when, when saying that some of these, you really want to think about these as students' beliefs about their SEL mm -hmm. um, rather okay. than, you know, a, a quote-unquote true assessment of SEL. There's lots of other measures out there, too, that um, are kind of direct observation measures where a teacher might 
rate a student's behavior directly um, or performance-based measures where a student might engage in like a simulation or a game as well as other kinds of item formats beyond uh, a Likert scale item asking students to agree strongly agree or strongly disagree on a one to five scale so some of those items are like forced choice items or situational judgment items um, we have lots to say about kind of the technical underpinnings of, of some of those things, but um, student self-report is really something that you can do quickly and inexpensively and at a large scale. Some of those other formats, even if they might give you additional information, they can be expensive or, or more time-consuming or harder to do uh, for a large number of students. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking data and education policy with Libby Peer and Nicole Webster of Education Analytics. So I have a question about, I know this, this, uh, the database here is, is large and you're doing some things that haven't been done before, but do you have any early examples of how the, your work has made, helped schools make better decisions, which is I think what you're set up to try to do? Yeah, so there's um, a paper that's been put out by Policy Analysis for California Education, which is a uh, policy research center out of Stanford University that serves as kind of the research arm of the core districts. Um, and they have a, a paper where they summarize some of the school level and district level practices um, that have emerged as a result of measuring the social emotional learning with this survey. Um, I think one of the most concrete examples uh, that, that they talk about in that paper is, is really messaging the importance of these skills. So when you put uh, measures of social emotional learning and school culture and climate side by side with uh, math test scores and English test scores as the core districts do in their kind of online dashboard that we build and house at Education Analytics, that really messages something important to, um, to the districts and to the people who work in the districts that uh, this is something that matters just as much as test scores, which for a really long time were uh, the only things that really factored into measuring or assessing school quality. Um, and similarly, making sure that uh, those measures communicate the importance that the districts are placing um, on, on measuring and improving students' non-cognitive abilities. I think we've seen that uh, trickle down into a lot of important practices at you know specific schools or in specific districts that hey this is something that matters and even if it's hard to measure we're going to try and we're going to try to um, see what's possible so you just mentioned the sort of value-added uh, work that comes with you know studying the, these uh, social and emotional factors but when you when you look at a student's progress how do you sort of tease out what's the teacher and the school system versus what's the home life? What's the, what's the effect in terms of progress? I know that's a I know that's a hard that's a hard thing. That's a really easy, easy question. question, really, Richard. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, so the value-added research is trying to grow beyond looking at um, a student's attainment and how well they scored on, the, on their post-test spring end of year score. So by taking into account their prior achievement and other demographic factors, we can assert that we've controlled for everything except the impact of a school or teacher and some idiosyncratic student effects. Mm -hmm. So then um, we're able to disentangle from the air term what part is an idiosyncratic student effect and what part is the school and the teacher. 
Give after me, controlling for demographics. Give so. me an example of an idiosync <laughs> idiosyncratic <laughs> student effect. <laughs> sure. Um, like what you said about a student's home life or yes. just if a student had a bad day, they could score poorly on the test or if it was raining outside or they didn't sleep well. These are a whole bunch of different student components. So when you're looking at these these models, do you apply them to to students that weren't in the the set that was used to develop the models to see how well that they they continue to work for groups that weren't part of building them? Do you do like out of sample prediction or apply it to different to other districts? In terms of uh, kind of a value added model framework, we don't really do out of out of sample prediction. We uh, use the students that were linked to or attributed to a particular teacher or school to measure the impact of that teacher or that school in that academic year. Um, we do have some research that we do uh, around out of sample prediction, uh, again, in collaboration with the core districts where we're trying to predict students' college and career readiness based on a whole suite of variables, including their test scores, their GPA, the rigor of the courses that they take, their SEL. Um, and for those uh, models, we're trying to make predictions for students in grades 3 through 12, but we don't have uh, a longitudinal data set that covers grades 3 through 12 and college and career outcomes. So um, in that case, what we do is, is use a chain linking approach to try and predict uh, ninth grade variables based on eighth grade, eighth grade okay. based on seventh grade, mm -hmm. um, so on and so forth. Um, and for those models as well, we're, we're calibrating on a particular cohort and then making predictions for, for later cohorts. But we've, we've seen in that research the importance of continually updating uh, the calibrations because things change in school districts from year to year. Can, can you give an example of something that you've learned that completely surprised you or a school district in, in analyses you've done? Oh, maybe the growth mindset uh, performance sure. of those items. Okay. Um, the growth mindset construct, I guess we were working on our research paper right now about um, rejecting a fixed mindset and how that's different from adopting a growth mindset. The original items that we asked in the, the core survey were all negatively worded about rejecting the fixed mindset. So I'm not capable of achieving in a class that I'm not naturally good at. Um, and then we reworded them so that uh, they're, they're less confusing for students and um, then we can better measure whether a student is adopting a growth mindset. So instead it now says, I can achieve things in my classroom even if I'm not naturally good at them. So how do you, you just gave an example of rewording a question. So when you're, when you're posing these questions, what's your input? Who, who writes the questions on, on, on this? And how, how much goes into that? It's really important to consider the content as well as the quantitative performance of an item. Um, the original items were written by Carol Dweck. And uh, when we assessed the performance of the rejecting a fixed mindset items, we noticed that students in younger grades are having trouble understanding the negative wording. So after recognizing this, um, because our survey is given to third through 12th graders and uh, Carol Dweck and Camille Farrington don't recommend that the uh, growth mindset items are assessed at very young grades where they might mm -hmm. have trouble um, understanding yeah. the growth mindset concept, we chose to uh, reword them so that they'd be better applied to younger grades. 
Huh? And more, more broadly, the uh, core districts went through a process of working with content experts uh, like Camille Farrington and, and others um, to pull from measures, uh, survey items that had been used in research and shown to be valid and reliable, um, mm -hmm. and, and worked with the stakeholders at the districts to say, you know, for them to be able to weigh in on what constructs were important for them to measure and and specifically what items they really wanted to prioritize. So it was a good example of bringing kind of a research base to bear uh, with practitioners to to assess the things that they decided mattered most for their districts. You know, one thing that that you've you've alluded to, but we haven't really explored, was the idea of what factors might impact this this uh, socio-emotional learning. And there are the factors that are maybe characteristics of the student, but also there may be some cultural characteristics of schools. So, can you just just give a, a sort of a quick flyover of some of the the student characteristics that seem to differ with respect to some of these SEL constructs, and then also how school culture can help with the growth of these. The core survey is actually two components, a social emotional learning component and a climate and school culture and climate survey. Um, the school culture and climate survey looks at whether students feel safe in their schools and how uh, clear the rules are and whether they feel like they belong in their schools. And these two components, though we often don't look at them together, are very intertwined. Um, when a student feels comfortable in their school and feels like they can participate in their class, uh, they have better academic outcomes and better non-cognitive traits. Um, they're student factors that could contribute to both um, their social and emotional learning and their academic outcomes, such as uh, how well they respond to teachers' expectations and some like cultural norms around uh, demographics or other homeless and foster composition of the school, or whether they're learning English or um, have already uh, are already fluent. So these student characteristics can be aggregated also then to the school level and you can look at whether or like a, a student teacher ratio or the the school average levels of um, different demographics to to assess how a school is performing in in uh, their social, emotional, and academic measures. So so as a as an, a follow up the the idea that that if you looked at a socio a student from a socioeconomically disadvantaged or an economically disadvantaged background that their trajectory in terms of self-efficacy or growth mindset would differ from the trajectory that you might find from a student from a more economically advantaged situation. Very true. We've we've seen that in one of our papers uh, but the gaps between economically disadvantaged and economically affluent students' declines in high school. Oh. I've also seen similar trends with different ra racial groups. Um, one particularly interesting but not necessarily surprising finding with self-efficacy is that um, students' self-efficacy responses tend to decline in middle school in this very awkward um, <laughs> time of life. Yes. Uh, and then tend to pick back up again uh, towards the end of high school. And what's even more fascinating is that both girls and boys self-efficacy declines in middle school, but girls have a sharper decline. Um, oh, wow. Uh, self-efficacy on the survey, some districts assess self-efficacy from a global perspective, how well you can um, master the hardest topics in all of your classes. And then there's also subject level 
competencies. So how well I can master topics in my science courses or my math courses or my English courses. Um, so looking at the breakdown between girls and boys globally and also in those subject mm -hmm. areas is very fascinating. One of the uh, one of the criticisms of standardized testing has been, and I think this is particularly at the high school level, is the criticism that teachers teach to the test. Mm -hmm. And uh, do you find, uh, ha, how does that factor into your research and what you're trying to do, especially with studying the social and emotional learning uh, elements of, of, of all of this, of education? Yeah, it's a really important question. I think, um, you know, we're, we're in a different era of accountability than we were 10 years ago. Um, the core districts yes. in particular often use this phrase that I love, which is, uh, you know, using data as a flashlight, not a hammer. Mm -hmm. And that um, it's really meant to illuminate best practices to uh, facilitate schools and districts being able to learn from each other and also shed light on which schools and districts might need some more support and more resources to really help improve their students' outcomes. Um, we're always concerned about, you know, teaching to the test or, or gaming, um, any measure that would be used for any kind of accountability. And so we're, we're skeptical at this point in our research about whether or not these sorts of surveys should be used to really um, be integrated into an accountability system. Right now, they're used in the core districts, like I mentioned, in their dashboard. So it's, it's information that's side by side with other variables and data points that they care about. Um, but there's no stakes tied to improving your students' social emotional learning um, in the way that you know a state might have stakes tied to mm -hmm. improving test scores. And, and we think that that's important. And I'm really optimistic to see you know, as we continue down um, a, a broader definition of what it means for students to be successful, how we can help uh, schools know if they're doing well without them feeling fear that they have to get their student scores up to yeah. a certain level or else, yeah. uh, because that's really where you start to risk seeing some of the kind of the wonky implementation of mm -hmm. these kinds of assessments. Yeah. So just a quick question, the, uh, this idea, you're tracking socio-emotional learning up through 12th grade. What happens after 12th grade? Hmm. I mean, do, you know, what, what do we see as, you know, into the university life and, and beyond as, as people go through, through their lifetime? Is, it, is this maxing out is this, or is this something that, that uh, continues to change? It's a really important question. I think we probably are a little bit less... Uh, up to speed on, on what happens after K through 12, since that tends to be the area we focus on most. But um, I know that there is a lot of really interesting work out there on, on assessing these kinds of skills for students in college and you know community colleges as well. Um, we do know that these skills continue to develop over time. And in the education space, there's a growing emphasis on teachers' social and emotional well-being as well. Mm -hmm. um, the idea that uh, if, if we want students to have, you know, a strong growth mindset and be able to regulate their emotions in appropriate ways, we also need to have strong adults around them who can model those skills and, and teach those skills. So, um, you know, they're, they're malleable at all parts of life. It's not, you know, only in early childhood, for instance, where these things can be taught. I think um, most adults can probably reflect on times at work when they've maybe not regulated their emotions so well or or times when they've doubted themselves and so there's there's certainly a lot that can still be done even beyond uh 12th grade 
Did you hear that, John? <laughs> <laughs> there's hope. There's hope for me, Richard. <laughs> That's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Libby and Nicole, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks to all of you. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.